You're listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with dry cleaning. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. But first, we review some new music from SZA and Margot Price. That's a bit of a song called Shirt from the new SZA record, S-O-S, SZA, S-Z-A. SZA as in RZA from uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, yes, right? but not SZA. But not, exactly. The second highly anticipated album in a row from this artist, uh, Solana Rowe, born in St. Louis, raised in New Jersey, a high school gymnast. Yeah. Wasn't really sure about this music thing. She started writing some music, uh, singing some songs, and uh, lo and behold, gets a contract from Kendrick Lamar's label, Top Dog, in her early 20s. Um, made three EPs, collaborations with Rihanna, Beyonce, Nicki Minaj along the way. She was already uh, the talk of the town, you know? I mean, you know, what's, this is, a, this is the next uh, yeah. great R&B This star, is an important right? voice. And she lived up to all that hype with, with Control, deeply personal record, almost diaristic, you know, the way she was approaching uh, a lot of the songs, the whole idea of sex and love and longing, African-American womanhood. It's all in that uh, record. More than 100 songs uh, written for that record yeah. that she winnowed down. Uh, and she had a hard time letting it go. It ended up selling 3 million copies. Huge success commercially. She's been busy in that time since. She dropped 16 singles in that well, time. Yeah, and collaborations, you know, including that Oscar-nominated uh, Black Panther track, All the Stars. 2021, uh, Doja Cat song, uh, Kiss Me More, that she was on. A huge hit single. Uh, she did an interview with the Trib in uh, 2017 in which she said she didn't want to spend another four years working on her next album. And she didn't. She, she spent, spent five. five. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> <laughs> so and, and here it is. It's uh, SZA with a new record out, which is uh, much, much anticipated SOS, and a track from it called Nobody Gets Me on Sound Opinions. too late. I don't want to That is Nobody Gets Me from SZA, uh, her second album in a career that has garnered many accolades. You know, shout out to producer Alex Claiborne. Uh, We spent a couple of weeks, most of two shows, Greg, wrapping up 2022. We never got to talk about this SZA record. I'm glad we're catching up with it now in the few sleepy days of 23 before things get busy again. Uh, Alex uh, said it was one of her favorite albums of the year. I agree. You know, I mean, look at the people working with her. Uh, From old school R&B giant Babyface to Rodney Jerkins to Lizzo. And Bjork, right? Phoebe Bridgers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Phoebe is everywhere uh, these days. That list alone shows the breadth of SZA's musical interests. She does not want to be called just R&B. There is as much uh, indie rock, electronica, folk music, uh, you know, in her mix as any other single ingredient. She's a singer. 
not as good a singer as a rapper. She's a great rapper, but most of all, she's a personality. She says uh, that this record was inspired by her being ticked off. It's about heartbreak. It's about being lost. It's about being ticked off. Um, but it is not uh, a downer. It is not wallowing mm-hmm. in anything. She gets angry. She fantasizes killing an ex in Kill Bill. <laughs> I might kill my And she makes some some profound statements uh, in Gone Girl. She's warning a partner not to get too clingy. I need your touch, not your scrutiny. I need your touch, not your scrutiny. Squeezing too tight, boy, you're losing me. Boy, you're losing. Gone, gone girl, gone girl. At another point, she says, I don't want to be your girlfriend. I want to be your person, mm. right? Which I think is a really powerful... I mean, girlfriend is is such an antiquated term, right? We all have friends. Some are male, some are female, some are non-binary. You know, um, girlfriend connotes possessiveness, mm-hmm. I think, in, in, in 2023. And SZA doesn't want to be owned by anybody. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, You know, she's a very serious artist. You know, and talking with her back in 2017... Uh, it was very obvious how much she invests in writing these songs. The craft of songwriting is really, really important to her, and she's such a perfectionist. I mean, for this record, again, over hundreds of songs written for it, 23 make the cut. She probably could have plied it down a little bit more. Yeah, uh, but yeah. 23 every, is a long album. Just about every one of these songs defies a conventional pop song structure. At the same time, she's evidencing you know that there's that country country-ish song yeah yeah f2f in there there's a baby face ballad there's a mazzy star vibe on that song Mm -hmm. nobody gets me the mixtape hip-hop vibe on smoking on my ex pack you know these are the variety of music that she brings into this is really intriguing and also the way she approaches it I love the fact that there was a level of understatement and dirtiness to those beats. There wasn't a big, yeah. booming beat. There's not big, obvious refrains either. She's not going for the home run. She's going for the, more of this smoky vibe. And I disagree with you. I think her singing voice is incredibly good. Yeah. Uh, and very Almost jazzy, more so than traditional R&B mm. you know, or contemporary pop. It, it doesn't, you it doesn't put me off. I just don't think of her as a great great vocalist like like margo price i would I, I would compare it to uh rihanna's 2016 album ante this reminds me a lot of that approach where everybody's going like what's rihanna up to there's no obvious hooks on this one this is mm-hmm. kind of a weird you know out there kind of record but rihanna when she gets kind of dirty and and and, and not not dirty in a, any any kind yeah. of explicit way but more in the gritty sound, let's say grit is right. Uh, this is what SZA, that, that level of R&B is where she's at right now. And I, I just think it's incredible. She also is great at saying the quiet part out loud. You mentioned that song, yeah. Kill Bill. Yeah. A, lot of, a lot of people think these in their relationship. She's saying it out loud. Yes, there is anger there, but it's also her courage in expressing her true feelings about these relationships. So, uh, you know, to me, uh, another great uh, record. It's probably going to get showered with mainstream Grammys, etc. But I, I just think uh, from a critical standpoint, I just I think she's one of the great artists of of recent times. Yeah, and we're due for another one in like 2028. <laughs> yeah. Used to be a 
That is a little bit of the song Been to the Mountain, the opening track on Strays, the fourth album from Margot Price, a native of a small town, Aledo, Illinois, that's out on the western border. She initially made a mark in the music world as part of the duo that formed Buffalo Clover, her and her husband, bassist Jeremy Ivey. Couple of indie albums, and then she went solo, still working with uh, hubby Jeremy. Uh, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, March 2016, big splash. It really marked Margot as one of this uh, current class of kind of underground-oriented uh, country singer-songwriters. Mm-hmm. Feminists, strong personality. Uh, that came through, I think, abundantly uh, late last year when we chatted with Margot about her autobiography, Maybe We'll Make It. She uh, indicated in that chat for Strays, the new album, that uh, they retired her and Jeremy to a Airbnb in Charleston, South Carolina, bringing nothing but notebooks, uh, guitars, and a pie of uh, psychedelic mushrooms. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were a couple of records, too. She was uh, listening to a lot of Tom Petty. Got some guests on this record. Mike Campbell, former Petty sideman. Uh, Sharon Van Etten, a uh, great singer-songwriter as well. What is Margot giving us on album number four? Let's play a track, and we'll come back with our reviews. This is uh, a song that uh, features Sharon Van Etten, Radio by Margot Price on Sound Opinions. Why do I feel so sick and tired? Sick and tired every day. There's a track called Radio from the fourth Margot Price album, Strays. Uh, Margot Price, um, you know, you mentioned that first album, Midwest Farmer's Daughter, and uh, it, it sort of, uh, I, I think people tend to think first impressions, that's what you are, you, mm. you, you know. So she's a country singer, right? Everybody made that uh, right. deduction. Uh, and of course she's not. I mean, and she <laughs> so subsequently made a bunch of albums that have really expanded her reach. I remember seeing her in concert right after that album came out, I go, wow. You know, she's drawing on Ike and Tina Turner's soul from the 60s. Mm-hmm. She was, talk, you know, uh, referencing Neil Young. She was referencing acid rock. You can hear those mushrooms yeah. in the guitar work on this album, well, I'll tell you that. For sure. This is the, um, you know, as soon as Bend to the Mountain kicks in with that organ sort of mm-hmm. drifting, and you know you're getting pulled into a different world uh, than the one she's been exploring, at least sonically, on in, in her studio record so far. You know, in terms of late bloomers, there, there's something to be said for uh, sort of being way under the radar for 10 years, 10 plus years yeah. like she was, yeah. and sort of developing her, her different musical tastes along the way. She's clearly able to do so much uh, as a, uh, an artist interested in all these different genres, uh, and, and that just gives her songwriting uh, so much more reach as well. I hate to say that this is the best album she's made, but I, I have to say I am more drawn to this record than any she's made so far, and none of them have disappointed me at all. No, I, I've but loved them all, yeah. This is really a pretty impressive piece of work, and uh, I, I think the, the range that she's showing here, you know, there, there's, there's definitely that acid rock influence, there's no doubt about that. 
um, but also just the, the way her voice operates within that. There's defiance here. I've been to the mountain and back. Yeah. Go on, take your best shot. Yeah. You know, she's sort of reflecting back on the uh, memoir, uh, mm-hmm. Maybe We'll Make It, where she's talking about, you know, going through these travails and wondering if she's going to get out the other side. And there's that toughness there. But there's also a wistfulness in, in some of these songs. You know, a song like Time Machine, where she's t- mm-hmm. reflecting back on her beginnings and, you know, what she learned there and, 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 and the struggle from that point to where she is now. She's not lost touch with the working class roots. I've been a waitress. Not now a, I'm a consumer. Not at all. <laughs> think about a song like Lydia which mm-hmm. I think is just oh, one of the peak moments in her career from a storytelling perspective A lot of these songs are more personal, yeah. introspective. This seems to be about a person, but in a lot of ways, Lydia's story could be her own story. Or any woman's details. today. Absolutely. The reason I chose radio to bump in, what I think um, uh, Margot Price retains from the great country pop uh, movement of the 60s, uh, Dolly Parton, you know, Emmy Lou Harris, Tammy Wynette to some degree, uh, is that, that masterful double entendre. So radio is is a song about uh, Margot, who is a mom, working hard to be a good mom, a good wife, and an artist, uh, you know, feeling alone and isolated during the pandemic and playing the radio, right, for a little bit of escape. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sexiness there. You know, uh, she's singing, you know, I've got nothing on but the radio. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so there are always several levels that she's working on. Her storytelling is excellent, as you said. Her her memoir uh personal songs are incredible the uh the voice is an incredible instrument and then we have more psychedelic guitar than we've ever had on a margot record and i'm all in favor of that what a wonderful record strays is so that's what we thought of the new music from SZA and Margot Price, and now we want to hear from you, our listeners. Let us know what you think in our Patreon community, or leave us a voice message on our website at soundopinions.org so we can play it on the show. Coming up, our conversation with Florence and Nick of Dry Cleaning. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. And we are back. It was 2019 when Dry Cleaning released its debut single, The Magic of Meghan, an ode to Prince Harry and Meghan Markle's recent engagement.
It might also be the most straightforward lyric of any song from the South London Quartet. Uh, A handful of EPs developed a more abstract lyrical style and caught the attention of the British music industry and then the world. Before the end of 2020, uh, the group was signed to the 4AD label, prestigious British indie. PJ Harvey's longtime producer John Parrish was in the studio with them, and we got their debut full length. That is right, Jim. That uh, first album released in 2021 titled New Long Leg, uh, it certainly got our attention. It landed on both of our top five albums of that year. Uh, And we both still listen to it uh, to this day. Mm -hmm. A wonderful record. Really holds up well. But I don't think either one of us were expecting the follow-up. You know, what are they going to do with that? It was so unique. Where do they go from there, right? (laughs) So unique. Could they possibly do it again? Exactly. And uh, lo and behold, Stump Work, the new album that came out in 2022, is even better than that first album. They really expanded their sound. My album of the year. We had a chance to uh, speak with drummer Nick Buxton and vocalist Florence Shaw to try to find out how their musical alchemy works. Welcome to Sound Opinions. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for having us and for the kind words and back at you. I love your podcast. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It's it's great to have uh, you both on. Um, Let's start at the beginning. Nick, you and your buddies, Tom and and Lewis, are essentially jamming. Right, we're gonna to put together a band, right? <laughs> but you're missing uh, the dulcet vocalist. <laughs> very much so. Yeah, it was very uh, non-vocal. What was the goal of, of what you know you were trying to do? Because um, no offense, Florence, but it seems like everybody focuses on you, right? You're up front. The music is extraordinary, and it's it's a real marriage between the band yeah. and vocalist. Um, was it sounding that way, Nick, at the beginning? Uh, yeah, the first rehearsal that Flo came to, um, I think we all knew right away. It felt great. It sounded great. Um, we, were, we were really unambitious. You know, we weren't looking to change the world or anything. Still not. But we were just like, we're all good friends. We were looking to have just a good time, really, and enjoy mm-hmm. making music together. And that's always kind of been the ambition with, with any project I've ever had. I can make a lot of music on my own, but I don't really choose to much of the time because... I enjoy collaborating and I think the aim of the band was really just to have a good time. It was more of like a social thing uh, rather than a musical thing. At that point, we would just get together on Sundays. We would go over to Lewis's mum's house and she'd, she'd cook food for us. Those were amazing times. And it really took me back to being like 16 and being in bands and going over to your friends' houses and like making a racket in the garage. We actually, I would say we spent more time in the beginning playing computer games and eating than we did making music, for sure, like 100%, yeah. Nick, you guys were, at least some of you had backgrounds in hardcore, right? For sure, hardcore yeah. Hardcore punk like, and... Uh, me, Lewis and Tom all played in sort of like heavier bands in the past. I've played drums and guitar in like kind of, uh, you know, kind of post-hardcore and like metal bands. Uh, but, you know, like tastes move on and like I haven't really played in a band like that for a long time. Maybe Tom more recently. But yeah, that was definitely, we've all kind of been there with bands like that for, for sure and done a lot of shows in those kind of scenes. All right, so Flo, you were friends with all these folks. Yeah. Um, uh, but prior to getting sucked into uh, uh, standing in front of the microphone, you're a Primarily a visual artist and a university lecturer, is that right? Yeah. I was Teaching? Th- yes, yeah, I was teaching. 
amongst other jobs, I, I was living mm-hmm. that kind of lifestyle where ends never totally meet. So I was doing like loads of different <laughs> kinds of work. Yeah, I was doing. That's some the definition kind of, of being a teacher. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was doing some kind of like office work on the side, and then and then also kind of like workshops with children, like arts workshops at a few different places, and then and then also teaching drawing to like um, kind of like eighteen, nineteen year olds mostly. Mm-hmm. Well. You know, by no means uh, are you a conventional vocalist. And I love this story. It might not be true. You were reluctant. I, what do you mean you want me to sing? Uh, they, they said, go listen to Grace Jones's Private Life and Little Fluffy Clouds by the Orb. <laughs> <laughs> Neither of which have conventional vocals. And, and it was like, look, those are great tracks, right? You can do this. Yeah, that's exa- that is exactly um, what happened. It was a, a long process. I sp- I talked to Tom about it first. We were in a pub. We would always update each other on what we were doing and making at the time and whether it was comics or being in a band or whatever. And he was talking about the band that he was doing with Nick and Lewis, which I already knew about um, because they were my friends. And I was like, oh, that's nice that they're getting together and um, doing a band. (laughs) (laughs) How cute. (laughs) Cool, like whatever. So funny. And um, and he had some on his phone. I think he had like recordings on his phone, which were which were basically mm-hmm. instrumentals of quite a few of the things on the first EP. Yeah, on, mm-hmm. on Sweet Princess. So I was listening to those. I was like, oh, these are nice. Um, great, like good, good for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And then, um, I don't know why that's making me laugh. No, it's, it's funny. Um, uh, it's a bit of a wobble, wobble moment, isn't it? It's like, oh, gosh. And then it was either right there or later that he said, oh, like, have you ever thought about being in a band? Like, like what about kind of doing some vocals? Which kind of, like, struck terror into my heart, P- possibly partly because when he asked, I had a feeling I would end up doing it. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, you just, if you just say no way, then it's fine. Right. And you just go home and you don't have to worry about it and it's not scary. But when he asked, I just had a feeling that either he would convince me to do it mm-hmm. or that I would be, like, too curious and, and would go along anyway, which is mm. far scarier. Right. Um, than just saying no and going home. So he asked me, and then I was immediately quite afraid. And I was sort of saying, well, not really. My dad is a musician, not uh, not as his profession, but he used to play in a lot of bands when I was younger. He plays the guitar really well, and he drums also, and he sings and plays a harmonica. He's so a like, cool guy. Yeah, so like when we were kids, he would sort of like turn us into a band. We'd like do backing vocals for him or whatever. And like just, you know, like sort of <laughs> sort of like playing, you know. He would like yeah. teach me little keyboard parts or whatever. But it was strictly for fun, you know. It was never something that I that I had ambitions to pursue. Well, I'm, I'm just fascinated with what that first rehearsal might have been like. They talk you into this, and some combination of they're your friends, and also you seem like, you know, in Chicago we have uh, such a huge improv scene, right? And the secret to being an improv comedian is you just say yes and. Thrown any challenge, you say yes and, yeah. right? You seem like a yes and person <laughs> that winds up fronting dry cleaning. Sort of this stream of consciousness that may be meaningless, but there's also meaning in there, right? Uh, you know, was that there from, you know, the first song you sang? 
Yeah, it, it just it felt like a really accessible way to come up with words. It really mm. wasn't like the sort of culmination of a long thought process. It was really just like what I felt like I could manage alongside the nerves, you know. So it mm -hmm. was kind of like, well, I know I can write in little chunks like I do that already. I was already doing that sort of in my phone, in like the notes in my phone. I was always, <laughs> yeah, like I was always just writing down little things I saw or thought about or heard that I thought were interesting or funny mm. or sounded funny. I would just write them down. And so I had all of that already. And so I just thought, oh, well, I'll kind of just like mash that together and see what happens. <laughs> mm. Um yeah not thinking that that would be the end result you know I just thought mm -hmm. well this is a stepping stone to doing something in collaboration with these musicians mainly because I was I was so nervous it's funny it's like I think about it now and really like probably things that were going on in like my personal life or even just the nerves themselves were really at the forefront what I was actually doing was totally mm -hmm. a footnote in, in that yeah. situation do you know what I mean mm -hmm. it's like we weren't really, th it was more just doing a band at all rather than what we were actually doing. Yeah. We got engaged on the day that I moved out. It's okay. She's a smasher. Perfectly suited to the role. It's still like that now, yeah. to be honest with you. Like, you don't really realise what you've made until after you've done it. You know, uh, and, mm -hmm. and your, your kind of existence in the process is like largely subjective. Maybe a year after it's done, you can kind of look back at it and go like, oh, yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I understand. Well, you know, Eno had been uh, uh -oh. a, a proponent of uh, uh, the words don't have to mean anything. We can go to them for the sound. And he was taking a lot of that from the surrealist uh, data as poets. You go ball, uh, you know, intentionally, you know, uh, cut and paste and also just, you know, taking words literally like out of one of those bingo drums. Yeah. And, and uh, I think part of the fun for fans of dry cleaning is, when is Flo singing about something? Oh, this is the song about the tortoise. <laughs> and when is this just words from the ether? Yeah. Uh, have you gone back, uh, you know, being a lecturer, a university person, uh, you know, have you gone back and looked at this word, this this business of spontaneous word generation? You know, I I haven't, but I I. I... I've subsequently heard a lot about it, you know, it's, um, mm. I'm, I'm, even though I've got that sort of tag of like university lecturer, what I taught was always very practical. It was always like drawing yeah. skills, you know, and talking about drawing. So I'm, I'm actually not a, not a super intellectual person. So, so that kind of side of things like cut up technique and Dada and all that is something that I've learned more about since I started kind of like doing the band and like mm -hmm. performing and writing in this kind of way it's something that's that's kind of come onto my radar more since then but the thing I always heard about Dada that I really liked was it sort of came about during a time where Europe was just there were lots and lots of different kind of fascist governments kind of taking control yeah. and that kind of thing the movement was sort of a statement to say that people had their own minds and that it was kind yeah. of um, World War One hung over everything yeah. they did yeah so it was like it was sort of like pushing back against that kind of group think that very sort mm -hmm. of black and white kind of fascist view mm -hmm. and and kind of protesting by saying you know like only one person could have come up with this kind of mad and uh, nonsense poem yeah. you know? so it's almost like proof 
proof that ind- individual minds are, are out there <laughs> and we're not all just well, like sheep or whatever. And, and I always well, thought that that was a really powerful thought, you know, that you could write something mm-hmm. that was absurd or funny or kind of nonsensical, but it actually, it actually had quite a serious mm-hmm. sort of there, there, There's inherent humour in that Dada approach, um, the cut-up thing. And I think that's what got to us, Flo, is that, you know, I remember, I think the first we heard of, of the band was was uh, I think it was a single scratch art lanyard. I think of myself as a hardy banana with that waxy surface and small delicate flowers, a woman in aviators firing a bazooka. And we're listening to his vocals, and it's very dry, deadpan, and all of a sudden I'm laughing out loud, and I played my wife this song, and I go. I think of myself as a hearty banana, <laughs> a woman in aviators firing a bazooka. I mean, those, that string of words right, right there. And, you know, it was out of thin air. And all of a sudden, I'm like, we're rolling on the floor laughing out loud. And, and my wife's reaction went, who is this? <laughs> you don't want to hear more of this stuff. And uh, so the humor is a really big part of it, I think, the, the appeal. But it's so understated that you almost wouldn't know that it's there unless you're kind of paying attention and then it just sort of well something like disco pickle just jumps out at you and you're like what so was that (laughs) was that always were you nick were you cracking up when you were listening to what what flow was coming up with or what was what was your response to it sometimes the lyrics may be on different songs or vice versa and yeah and uh things things change a lot whilst we're kind of figuring out how to do it and I think sometimes, not always, but like, you know, we, we rehearse a lot in these scuzzy little rehearsal rooms where you can't always hear a nuanced, quiet, yeah. spoken vocal over a loud rock band. But it's really interesting what you're talking about. I think humour is like a, is a huge part of, 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 of what we do. I think people uh, connect with it massively in that way. And I think humour is always like a, such a useful tool um, in the way that Dada was, like uh, in the way that you can uh, rail against the things that you you find oppressive and and disgraceful. Were you surprised at the reaction that the rec- the first album got? New Long Leg was was a hit. <laughs> I mean, it was. <laughs> Imagine that. It wasn't yeah. just a, you know an arty side project. It was a it was a charting album. Mm. Did that surprise you both? Yeah, I think yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, massively. Oh, it's crazy, right? You don't want to yeah. sort of do yourself down by being like, "I was shocked that it did well." <laughs> that, that <laughs> right, because obviously makes, you're proud of it. That sounds really kind of self-deprecating, doesn't it? But like, I think we were. I think we've always been aware that, like, you know, we're not oblivious to the fact that, like, we're a bit of an odd <laughs> band. You know, I think that's fair to say, yeah. Yeah. right? I don't yeah. think that's, I don't think that's too strong. We never thought that success would just come rolling in automatically at all. Like, we just did not. No, we were kind of readying ourselves for it to be more more of a slog, probably. Uh, I mean, probably? I, I, yeah, probably. It's hard, I, it's hard to say, but yeah, we did not expect yeah, yeah. it to like, go to number four yeah, in the charts. There's, no. a cer- there's a certain amount of kind of confidence that you you can definitely take from people being interested in your band, you know, working with a manager, like like having a record label want to work with you and a publishing company and all this kind of stuff. You know, John Parrish, no slouch. Absolutely right. Produce I mean, you guys. Yeah, I can't believe that should have been the first name on my lips, right? And that it certainly made me feel confident in what we were doing. The success of something like New Long Leg is, 
yeah, it, it's in- incredible. Uh, but I, I didn't, I don't know, I, I can't say I really thought about it too much when, um, you know, when it was first coming out. You're just kind of glad that it's out there, yeah. you know, because yeah. you've been listening to it for a year. <laughs> don't cry, just drive. When we return, we'll talk with Dry Cleaning about how their surprise success has affected their creativity. That's In a Minute on Sound Opinions. And we're back. We're talking with Florence Shaw and Nick Buxton of Dry Cleaning. All right, so Flo, I have a question for you. The the persona on stage, the persona on record is so uh, powerful and wise and funny and witty. I, I just picture Emma Wouldn't it Peel be nice to be with that like person? a happy <laughs> air, you know, you just run us right through with this sword. And yet, Flo keeps getting asked what it's like to be a woman in a band. That's like, oh, God almighty, what the worst question ever, you know. What's hard like to, to answer when you are Tell one. Us both. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But you do have this persona. So if people are running into you when you're buying oranges at the grocery store, do they expect the Florence of dry cleaning? Do you feel you have to live up to that? It's a good question. I think if, if, if anything, it just helps me because I'm not... I'm not necessarily consistent. Sometimes I find socialising really hard and mm. sometimes I find it easy and enjoyable and I never quite know how I'm going to feel. So in a way, having a persona that is perhaps a little a little uh, removed can be helpful because it, it, people don't necessarily expect me to be a barrel of laughs. <laughs> or like a... <laughs> they might be a little intimidated. Well, they, or they or they don't necessarily expect me to be super super friendly mm. um and and if i can manage to be then that's a bonus <laughs> <laughs> okay. gotcha, gotcha. and i feel like but i obviously i didn't think about that at all when when we did that first rehearsal in the garage like that i was mm. just kind of like who who's the kind of person I imagine to be really confident or who's the kind of person I'd like to be like or like and I think of it more than being sort of an ice queen or something like that I think of it more as like just a strong person who's quite immovable Mm. I I find that really attractive that that sort of idea and I'd love to be like that but I'm not like that all the time (laughs) I don't think anybody could be but it's a goal to aspire to yeah 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 I was going to ask about the fact that you were, you know, you're a teacher, you, you're, you're standing in front of a classroom, right, in front of, of students, right, talking to them. Yeah. Did that make it easier to, to be a, a performer in a band? It's definitely true. It, it did wind up being a bit of a stepping stone. I can get into a mindset where I can stand in front of people and speak and I, and I, and I feel basically calm. Not before mm. or after. That's a nightmare. But during, I, I have, like, I'm able mm. to just be calm. And I don't know why that is, but it's, it's a thing. I've always, always had that. And I've found a good use for it. <laughs> <laughs> Constructive. Yeah. All right, so, and, and Nick, I think what you were saying earlier uh, was fascinating. I think people who haven't been in bands don't understand uh, how valuable when you can have, uh, finally get to a rehearsal space that has, like, 
heating or air conditioning and a powerful enough PA to hear the vocals and and hear each other, right? So you're there, and now it's time for album number two. Was there pressure on top of the fact that now we can all hear ourselves? It's like, uh-oh, what, what do we do now? Uh, um, not really. I mean, we, if it's sort of okay to say so, we were sort of beneficiaries of the pandemic in the sense that mm. we wrote half of stunt work before New Long Leg had been released. So we, oh, wow. we, fin- we finished recording it and you get it mastered and whatnot. And then we couldn't play shows. Mm. Yeah. Um, we had press to do and things like that. So we would get to writing and then once all the press was done, we were actually extremely focused on writing new material because there wasn't even really much... Uh, to do at home there was a lot of stuff going on in that period both you know on a global sense but also in a personal sense like we had some very difficult things uh, going on in our personal lives um and i think the rehearsals and the writing um was kind of like an escape you know it was a uh, something else to do something else to think about there is some element of pressure around it but i don't really indulge in a lot of the press or anything like that it's sort of too fragile to really go delving for those kind of things <laughs> me too yeah. i'm the same really? i don't read anything yeah try to avoid most of it with, but, a, with a delicate flower i mean you, you would know you would know if it had been badly received you would know regardless of what you read you know like yeah. uh, you just you just know so it's a strange mix of like confidence and pressure but i'd say mainly you know I, i'd say we felt really emboldened to to try new things and to just, you know, get songs written without really thinking too much about it. What it impresses me is that the band is able to do a wide variety of things in a very subtle way. Hmm. How does it come together? Do you feel like there's a song in the record that sort of represents to you where we are in late 2022 versus where we were when New Long Leg came out? Maybe, like, I mean, I always want to say Anna, because mm-hmm. uh, Anna calls from the Arctic, it's the first song on the record and it's by far the most sort of like unusual sounding. It doesn't sound like the rest of the songs really. It has synths on it, which is not really something we've done before. Not not, not anything like beyond the sort of, exactly, yeah, yeah. like not as a major part of the song. Making on the train and of course from the Arctic. See the scientists or people who are mining or dog sledge people. See the scientists or people who are mining or dog sledge people. And it came from a, a bass and clarinet and synth jam that you did with <laughs> Lewis. I think me and Tom were both ill, right? Or something like that. So yeah. when we had, and we had a rehearsal book. And they were like, well, we're still going to do it. Nick started playing a clarinet. <laughs> like, wow. And it, yeah. Mm-hmm. And like this kind of, um, we have a collection of all our demos and we had about 50 of them at one point. And this little one that's called Peanuts was just in there for ages and ages, this little bass and clarinet and synth jam that basically sounds a lot like how Anna Calls from the Arctic sounds. We just kind of expanded it and made it a bit more mm. kind of romantic, I guess, and a bit more epic. Yeah, lushed it out. yeah. It was almost quite an unusual choice because at the very last minute, sort of almost before we went to record, we turned that little, that little kind of recording into a, a song, which gave, is which is it structure. It's yeah. definitely like mm. now it's like one of my favourites. I feel mm. like it has a really unique atmosphere, and we sort of did it just quite quickly, right at the last minute, and that felt very 
just felt quite experimental, quite playful, and just a bit sort of like risky and weird. It's got mm. a weird choice to make. Mm. And I guess I just hope that we make more weird choices like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Flo, do you put the with the words over the top of it when you hear what they're doing, or or is the band working off lyrics that you give them? How does that how does the dynamic work between the vocals mixing with the so well with the music? It's totally give and take. So nothing comes first. It all comes at the same time. So when we're rehearsing, we're all improvising and playing and I'm speaking and vocalising at the same time. So with all my writing there and I'm kind of putting it together and making it up as we go in the same way that Lewis is putting together and making up his bass parts Mm. and Nick's doing the same on the drums and Tom's doing the same on the guitar. Um, and we'll do that until we feel our way towards a, a song, you know. We make a lot of recordings on um, on our phones of, of mm. like just little demo versions of songs and we'll take them away and listen to them, decide which bits to keep, which bits to get rid of. So it's mm. like trial and error, really. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's never like lyrics first, music second. I mean, it was that in the very beginning for Sweet Princess, yeah. but because I hadn't even joined yet. But then ever since then... It's all been just written at the same at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I'm I'm looking forward, Greg, to a decade from now, after six or eight albums from dry cleaning, when the box set comes out and there's like six <laughs> the CDs outtakes. of these demos, and the, you know, Nick, does does Flo ever let the band look at the phone? That has all these phrases that she's picked up from oh, the ether. Oh, the stuff you've written down. Well, you're not very secretive about it. You just no. it's often it's not really on the phone. It you, you tend to collect the, the starts on the phone and then you'll put it on paper yeah. and the and paper I, will just be everywhere. And then I print so, it out. Yeah. <laughs> see, that's what I would love to see. That well, the way they're describing what you're describing, we we you know we we talked to Pino Palladino, who was mm. you know at the Soul Aquarians working with D'Angelo. And I, I don't know if you're familiar with the voodoo record, but yeah. that was like made in a, a very way, the way you're describing. It's like, you know, jam band sounds like a very bad thing to call uh, dry cleaning, but because you're not that. But it's sort of creating that sort of atmosphere where everybody's sort of working together in real time as opposed to I recorded my bass part. Now here's the drums. Now here's the guitar part. And, and then the vocals are going to go at the end. And it sort of comes together like a a digital creation, but you're doing it in real time. We've discovered recently that it leads to some very complicated song structures. <laughs> but, uh, mm. Then when you try to unravel yeah. it and learn and like sort of learn it again later, mm. it's like a bloody nightmare. Yeah, like, yeah. So we were, <laughs> <laughs> we play this on stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We were like all trying to count our different parts oh, for yeah, yeah. Anacles from the Arctic yesterday. And it's like, I've definitely got the simplest job by far. Uh, but yeah, everyone else is like counting in sixes and sevens and rounds of eight. And someone was talking about rounds of eleven or something like eleven. Yeah. They restart their part for eleven I think, bars. I think that was wrong as well. <laughs> we got very, we got it very confused. Genesis. <laughs> yeah, it does. It does get confusing. But it's like a. I guess we like we are a jam band in in that sense. I don't want to rule out us making music any other way. At any stage, like I think it might be really interesting for us at some point to make a record in a completely different way. We've talked yeah. about before, maybe you know, you can kind of keep the essence of like being a jam band and go into the studio without any songs, you know, and just start completely yeah. from scratch. Like mm-hmm. we're all really interested in like taking a risk like that. It might completely fail, but that's what's kind of exciting about it. 
Mm-hmm. Well, people forget, you know, there's jam bands like Matthews or something, uh, Fish, and then there's like Can. <laughs> Hell yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Well, we could just talk to dry cleaning all day, Mr. Cod, but, yeah. but we have to, to let you guys go. I never even got to ask Nick uh, about what it's like to be a boy in a band. <laughs> um, <laughs> let me tell you, you have no idea. I, I, so, so nobody ever talks about that. That's right. We've been talking to Florence Shaw and Nick Buxton of uh, of Dry Cleaning. Uh, I am so excited about the new album. Thank you. Thank you for making us smile. Yeah, oh, thanks, guys. Thank you. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. It's been really nice talking to you. Yeah. Yeah. New Zealand, France, Switzerland, Northampton, Exeter, Egypt. It won't do to cry about it. That wraps up our conversation I've with Dry that. Cleaning, and what a pleasure it was. Now we want to hear from you. What Dadaist art is your favorite? Leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, or start a conversation in our Patreon community or in our Facebook group. That is a little bit of Shapes of Things by the Yardbirds with Jeff Beck on guitar, uh, an amazing guitarist. Died at the age of 78 on January 10th. Nobody saw that one coming. No. Uh, you know, talk about a guy, you know, you talk about the decadence of 60s rock stars. Mm. Jeff Beck was a clean living dude, you know? Yeah. yeah. Auto mechanic. He loved his yeah. cars. He lived a clean life. He was in great form. Right up to the very end, he was touring and recording regularly uh, over the course of a 50-year career. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- this was quite a stunning uh, piece of news. Well, and, and, and despite the amount of psychedelic influence yeah. in the, those really great Yardbird singles, like the one we bumped in with, not known as a druggie, and really kind of a grounded fellow, but what a perfect m- mixture of psychedelic and blues. Absolutely. Um, you know, the Yardbirds, he was only in the Yardbirds for a couple of years. He replaced Clapton, famously replaced yeah. Eric Clapton, <laughs> who thought the uh, Yardbirds weren't bluesy enough for him, so he went on to the Blues Breakers. Beck took the Yardbirds from being kind of a purist blues rock band Mm -hmm. into that psychedelic realm, as you mentioned, noise, avant-garde music. He was bringing all that to the guitar. You know, I I would say that uh, people like Bo Diddley, uh, Paul Burleson, uh, Pat Hare, these 50s greats, uh, reinvented the guitar in terms of incorporating noise and dissonance and, and feedback into what they were doing. But Beck took it to a completely different level uh, years before Hendrix got on the mm. scene, you know, um, this whole idea of sculpting noise, that using uh, a sort of a methodology about how to play that feedback and that noise and sculpting it into almost compositionally into something that resembled a song. Uh, that Beck did that better than anybody and, and before anybody, really. Uh, and it started out with the Yardbirds. He left the Yardbirds after only a couple of years. Page, Jimmy Page came in mm-hmm. uh, famously and took over that job. Jimmy Page was paying attention to what oh, Jim yeah. Beck was doing, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, and formulating Led Zeppelin at that point. When you think about Beck's Bolero, uh, the, the song that uh, Beck announced his solo career with, uh, that included Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones, mm-hmm. both of the future Led Zeppelin, and uh, Keith Moon, 
of the Who on drums. So <laughs> That's he a ba- nice backing crew. That man had the respect of everybody in the English rock scene. And well, and, and it's a sad irony that he never achieved uh, the superstardom of the Who or Led Zeppelin. Well, you know, two things. He wasn't a singer, and he wasn't right. a songwriter, really. You yeah. know, he was more of an interpreter, but that what he did with that guitar was amazing. The, the, the first two uh, Jeff Beck group uh, soul, uh, records with a Rod Stewart, a young, unknown Rod mm-hmm. Stewart on vocals and a young, unknown Ronnie Wood on bass uh, were amazing records. Basically, that Truth record that uh, the Jeff Beck group did in 1968, that's the template for, for Led Zeppelin right there. And mm-hmm. that was a year ahead, ahead of, the, of, of Zeppelin. And then he went on to a solo career, uh, which included a groundbreaking uh, fusion record uh, produced by George Martin called Blow by Blow in 1975. And some people lose the plot there. You know, they go, oh, it's too, uh, it's too jazz fusion-y for me. But I, I think that's an incredibly inventive record. And if, if you listen to the entire thing, there's a lot of soul in it. And I think that's what Beck brought to all his playing, was that he was an incredibly soulful uh, musician. He couldn't, he wasn't really a singer, so he played the guitar like the human voice. And he yeah. was able to create sounds on the guitar. You can hear that in something like Heart Full of Soul. Yeah. He's echoing the vocal melody. Yeah. It's truly astonishing. And I heard uh, Alice Cooper said something really beautiful about him. He said, Clapton was a great blues guitarist. Uh, Page was a great rock guitarist. Jeff Beck was a great guitarist. Mm. There was no genre that could really contain what he was doing. And the one thing that I think separates uh, Beck from uh, the pack from a lot of his 60s peers is that he kept growing and innovating all through the decades. He never really stopped uh, reinventing himself and expanding his range. In tribute to Jeff, let's play a little bit of uh, uh, Beck's Bolero, which has really got his solo career going. Uh, that track that I'd mentioned with Page, John Paul Jones, and Keith Moon uh, accompanying him. Here is the late, great Jeff Beck on Beck's Bolero and Sound Opinions. Bex Bolero, in tribute to the late guitarist dead at the age of 78. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have songs about photography. Okay, we're going to go dig deep into uh, this particular area of music making. And we're going to chat uh, with one of our favorite photographers. Absolutely. Uh, And don't forget to check out our bonus podcast wherever you can get your podcast. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, and our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo. Our Columbia College intern is Lauren Holt, and our social media consultant is Katie Cott.